It is time for children's church, and so if you are three or four, or if you are in kindergarten through fifth grade, we will see you guys and girls later. Go on back, and uh, we'll see you after church. For those of you that are graduates of children's church, would you take out your Bibles, please? And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 4 this morning. And if you're new with us, hi, my name's Cody. I'm the pastor, senior pastor here, and grateful that you're worshiping with us today. And uh, there should be, if you don't have your Bible with you, there's a black one in the pew rack in front of you. And I'd encourage you to open that up and follow along with us as we uh, go through our study this morning of Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Uh, a while back, I heard an old preacher tell this story um, about a couple that attended the funeral of their friend. And their friend, they knew, had lived a very sinful life, did not walk with Jesus in any way, uh, and um, so they were kind of surprised when they got to the funeral, and it was at a church, and it was led by a fiery preacher, and the preacher didn't pull any punches. He said to those in attendance, you've got to give your life to Jesus, and you've got to do it today. It's too late for this guy, <laughs> but it's not too late for you. He's already stood before his judge. You haven't stood before your judge. He's receiving the reward of a life lived in opposition to Jesus, which is eternal hell. You can receive the reward of a life of faith in Jesus, which is eternity and glory with Jesus forever. What are you going to do? Will you be like him or will you say yes to Jesus? The funeral ended. The couple walked out to their car and they sat in their car and they both agreed. Worst funeral ever been to. Can't believe what that guy said. It was manipulative. It was emotional. It was insensitive. And worst of all, it was true. <laughs> Sometimes the Bible grabs us by the sides of our face and tells us to wake up. It screams warnings into our souls that are not very palatable that are not always easy to receive. You didn't wake up this morning and say, man, I really hope the Bible kicks me in the teeth today. But sometimes God loves us so much that he will put the hard truth in front of us for the sake of our souls. Genesis 4 is a bit of a hard truth. It has a message for us. The message is this. If you don't address your sin, it will destroy you. The truth is this, the people who need Genesis chapter 4 the most are those who want it the least, but God loves you too much and he is too kind to leave you without a warning and without a call to his grace and his restoration. This morning in Genesis 4, we meet Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel. The spotlight of this story is on Cain and he's going to teach us about the devastating impact of sin. And my goal in preaching this passage today is to warn you of the danger of sin in your life and also to lead you in starting the process of confession and repentance from sin. This is not a day to leave church feeling beat up and put down. It's a day to walk out of here pursuing spiritual renewal in the grace of Jesus Christ. And for me to warn you effectively from this passage, I'm going to have to show you the, the, excuse me, the destructive power of sin. And so I want you to follow along with me as I read Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. 
the man was intimate with his wife Eve. The man there is Adam. And she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. She also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you furious, and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? Then he said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. But Cain answered the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth, I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord replied to him, In that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. It's a hard passage. We have so quickly gone from the beauty of paradise in Eden to the horror of this kind of violence in Genesis 4. But it's vital that we hear this story and that we sit with it and we learn from it. And in Genesis chapter 4, we learned three truths about the destructive power of sin. Let me show them to you. The first truth is this, sin is a worship destroyer. You've got to know that the sin in your life destroys your worship of God. When we read Genesis 4, I think probably the first question we ask is this, what's wrong with Cain's offering? Cain offered produce, vegetables, grains that he grew himself. He offered those as an offering to God. But Abel, he offered some animals from his flock. One was a vegetable sacrifice. The other was an animal sacrifice. And we're told that God did not regard Cain's offering, but he did regard Abel's. So why is that? Is it because Cain's produce offering is inferior to Abel's blood offering? Should Cain have found an animal to offer to the Lord instead of his produce? I don't think so. I don't believe there's anything wrong with the contents of Cain's offering. There's three reasons why from the Bible. First of all, Leviticus chapter 2 describes an offering similar to what we have here. It uses some of the same language as Genesis chapter 4. 
to describe what's called a dedication offering. And in Leviticus chapter 2, it is just as acceptable to present produce as it is to present an animal in this dedication offering to the Lord. So there's nothing wrong biblically with a produce offering versus an animal sacrifice. Second reason I think there's nothing wrong with Cain's vegetables is because Hebrews 11.4 shines some light for us on what's happening in this story. It says this, it says, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. So according to Hebrews 11.4, what is it that made Abel's sacrifice better than Cain's? It's not the contents of the sacrifice. It's the heart of the man. It's his faith. Another reason that I think Cain's offering of vegetables is not a problem is 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, also gives some commentary on this scene. It says this, Cain, who was of the evil one, murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And so again, according to 1 John 3, the difference between Cain and Abel is that Cain's deeds were evil. He was an evil man. It's, the problem is not with his sacrifice. Cain's problem is not the contents of his offering, but it's the man himself. According to Hebrews 11, Cain was broken on the inside. According to 1 John 3, he's broken on the outside. His offering to God was not going to be acceptable whether he had a blood sacrifice or not. His sin destroyed his worship. Now, the Bible is full of examples of how our sin impacts our worship negatively. And I had a whole long list, and I know you love it when I preach for a long time. You tell me all the time how much you love a long sermon. But I've whittled it down to one premium example of how sin negatively impacts our worship. It's from Micah chapter 6. And in Micah chapter 6, God is, in a way, pleading with his sinful people to return to him. They've turned their backs on him. They've gone after other gods. They've chased after their own flesh. And in Micah 6, God is pleading with them to come back. And then God's sinful people respond to God. And I want you to look at and listen to what they say. They say this, what should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow down before God on high? Should I come before Him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the offspring of my body for my own sin? You see the question he's asking here? He's saying, what sacrifice can I give to make you happy, to get you off my back? And the speaker goes through these increasingly ridiculous sacrifice options, none of them realistic. A thousand rams, 10,000 streams of oil, my own child. God, is that what will make you happy if I sacrifice my own child to you? What a perverse way of thinking. Well, God responds to these ridiculous questions in Micah chapter 6 through the prophet Micah. And Micah says this. He says, mankind, 
He has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. The lesson is this. Don't miss it. God isn't interested in your worship if he doesn't have your heart. We just sang a lot of songs, and we just prayed, and we read Scripture together. You've done worship as everyone externally can identify worship, but does God have your heart? God goes after Cain's heart in this story. Look at what God said to an angry Cain in verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Notice God's instructions to Cain. He doesn't tell Cain to change the contents of his offering. He doesn't say, away with your vegetables, bring me a lamb. He doesn't say that. He tells Cain, look to your own life. If you do what's right, you know you'll be accepted. Cain, if you'll love me inside and out, your worship will be pleasing to me. God gives him a warning. He says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. Some people have looked at this story and looked at God's rejection of Cain's offering and concluded that God must be petty or arbitrary. But I don't want you to miss his gracious warning to Cain. He loves Cain so much that he will refuse an empty-hearted offering in order to confront the man about his sin. That's love. That's grace. And so God warns him that sin is crouching at the door. That's not to say, Cain, you're about to sin. It is to say already, Cain, you are deeply enmeshed in sin, and what's about to happen will have atomic repercussions. He loves Cain so much, he's going to warn him of impending doom if he does not change his way. So, Knowing what you know of your own heart today, your own walk with the Lord, I wonder if your worship this morning has been acceptable to God or not. I'm not saying that we have to be sinlessly perfect before we walk in here and sing a song. That's not what the Bible teaches us. But what Genesis 4 does teach us is that we must be in battle with our sin by relying on Jesus who makes us righteous, who enables us to do what is right, and who defeats the sin that is crouching at the door of our hearts. We have to come in here in a reliance on Jesus, not play the part, not be a religious pretender. I'll sing the songs, check the boxes so everyone will think well of me. Genesis 4 calls us to examine our hearts and souls before our God who loves us enough to warn us of disaster. Do not underestimate sin's ability to destroy your worship and devour you. It's terrifying. 
There's a second truth we learn about the destructive power of sin in this story, and that truth is this. Sin is a relationship destroyer. Not only does it wipe out our worship, and it, it does serious damage to our relationships. Moses, who wrote this, tells the awful story of Abel's murder with mercifully few words. Verse 8 Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. God does not um, waste time either. He shows up very quickly. Verse 9 goes right to the scene between God and Cain. And the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? You can hear the flippancy. You can hear the lie, you can hear the disregard in Cain's voice. Cain's sin has destroyed his relationships. It's obvious how his sin has destroyed his relationship with his brother. Cain has become the destroyer of his brother. And Moses, who wrote this story, wanted to make sure that we felt the weight of Cain's actions. In verses 8 through 11, he uses the word brother six different times. He is pounding it into our head. This is his brother, 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 brother who he has destroyed by his own hand. Not only has he destroyed the relationship with his brother by becoming his brother's destroyer, he's also destroyed his relationship with God. We know that because in verse 9, Cain lies to God. God asked, where's your brother? I don't know. And then following this, action, God's judgment on Cain is swift and severe. In verse 10, Cain learns that his sin is not a secret. God told him, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And now God announces his judgment on Cain in verse 11. He says, so now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you've shed. If you work the ground, it'll never again give its yield to you. You'll be a restless wanderer on earth. So this is the first instance in Scripture in which a human is cursed. Cain shares this in common with the serpent from chapter 3. Both of them are cursed by God. Not only is Cain alienated from his relationships, but he's also alienated from the earth itself. The blood of his brother had cried out against him from the soil so that he's banned from it forever. He's going to wander uh, over the earth as an enemy of God and an enemy of all creation. So Cain's sin has destroyed his relationships with his brother, also with his parents, and also with God. And sin has the ability to destroy everything it touches. This was an important lesson for ancient Israel to learn from Moses, who wrote this. You remember the original audience of this story. It's the Hebrew people after they've been freed from slavery in Egypt, after they've received the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, but before they step into the Promised Land. So it's in this window of history that Moses writes this account Ancient Israel reads this story as they hold on to the Ten Commandments, trying to make sense of how they're to live in right relationship with the God who has brought them out of their slavery. And do you know what the Ten Commandments are all about? <laughs> the first four of the Ten Commandments are all about 
our relationship with God. The last six of the Ten Commandments are all about our relationships with each other. So here, ancient Israel sits and reads of how Cain's sin has destroyed his relationships, and they hold in their hands the Word of God, teaching them how to live right with God and right with each other. They're seeing firsthand the disastrous effects of sin on every relationship. And this is a steady theme throughout the Bible from the very beginning. Here in Genesis 3 and 4, we see how important it is that our relationships are right with God and with each other. And in the Ten Commandments, we learn how important it is that our relationships with God and each other are proper. And then fast forward to Matthew chapter 22, and Jesus himself says, this is the greatest commandment of all things written in the Bible. This is the greatest, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. All of God's Word is summed up in these commandments. The Bible is beautifully consistent from cover to cover of how vital it is that we live in right relationship with God and right relationship with each other, and the danger to those relationships is your own sin. There's no such thing as victimless sin. There's no such thing as secret sin. I mean, doesn't the story teach us this? But how seldom do we actually think about the impact of our sin on the lives of the other people around us? We don't. I remember this conversation so well. It is a source of great sadness in my life. As I sat several, several years ago across from a very dear friend of mine, as he's describing to me the sin he had been living in for some time, and he said this, he said, I never thought about how it would impact my wife. And I never thought about what it would feel like to explain myself to my parents. We don't consider the people in our lives when sin is crouching at the door. We don't consider the family and friends that mean so much to us. We don't consider our God who is fearful and eternal and mighty and the judge of our souls. We only think about what we want and we use twisted logic to convince ourselves it's okay. Then we open the door and let sin devour us and impact those around us. And it doesn't take the deepest, darkest sin to hurt our relationships. It happens with what we would call small things like lies or gossip or jealousy or an uncontrolled temper and a raised voice. Brothers and sisters, you have to hear the warning from Genesis 4 this morning. Your relationships are impacted by willful, unchecked sin in your life. There's a better way. Pretty heavy so far. Genesis 4 just swings heavy on our hearts and our minds. And there's one more aspect of sin and destruction you've got to understand from this story if we're going to get this right. And it's this. God's grace is the sin destroyer. Hey, there's hope for us here in Genesis chapter 4. 
Cain responds to God's curse with grief and lament. Verse 13, my punishment is too great to bear. He never shows remorse. Throughout the course of Cain's life, we don't see repentance necessarily. We don't see anything that we would consider some sort of a conversion or, or a turn back to God. Whenever he grieves here in verses 13 and 14, it's not about what he's done to his brother or his parents or to God. His grief is about the punishment he has to carry. He grieves out of fear and self-pity. But God amazingly responds in Cain's favor. Look at verse 15. Then the Lord replied to him, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Cain's afraid that eventually his crime against Abel will catch up to him and someone will exact vengeance by taking his life. God says, I'll protect you. Gives him some sort of unique mark and he preserves his life so that he does not meet an early demise. We don't know what the mark was precisely. However, we can say with confidence that the mark was God's grace to Cain to preserve his life. God shows such astounding grace to Cain. Cain was not faithful, but God was faithful. Cain abandoned the Lord, but the Lord did not abandon Cain. God's grace to Cain is all over this story. Right? And in the first half of the story, God shows him grace by warning him about his sin, by rejecting an empty offering and dealing with the man's heart. That's God's grace on display. And then here in the back half of the story, God shows him grace by protecting him even after he had killed his brother. Is there anything about God's grace to Cain that makes you uncomfortable? makes you think, ah, I, I, don't, I don't understand that. I'm not sure Cain deserves God's grace. You're exactly right. He doesn't. Neither do you. And that's what's incredible about grace. You can't earn it. You don't merit it. Grace, by its very definition, is receiving the good thing you don't deserve. And we are just as undeserving of God's grace as Cain was. Maybe your sin doesn't match exactly one for one. Regardless, you have rejected God, and we have rejected a greater revelation than Cain had in Genesis 4. We've seen Christ his life, his death, his resurrection, and still we have chosen sin. This is what makes grace so beautiful and incredible. It's that God is faithful when we're not. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I cannot emphasize enough how important it is that you get this into your heart, that you understand what God's grace is like. You have to know that your sin has broken your relationship with God. Like Cain, you're at fault and you're cursed. You carry, every one of us are born into this curse. 
But God has shown you more grace than Cain ever dreamed of. You see, God only protected Cain from an early demise, but God has promised to give you eternal life. He loves you. You haven't been faithful to him, but he's been faithful to you, so much so that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die in your place for your sin. Jesus is God in the flesh. He lived a sinless life. And he's God's one and only perfect sacrifice for your sin. When Jesus died on the cross, the sinless Son of God took your curse on himself. He ate, he absorbed the curse of God for your sin in full so that you could be forgiven and made holy. So that the sin that crouches at the door of your heart would be destroyed forever. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 24 tells us that when we put our faith in Jesus for our salvation, that we come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood rightly called for vengeance, but Jesus' shed blood shouts forgiveness to everyone who comes to him in faith. He wants your heart. And he's done everything in his eternal power to make that happen. And he invites you today to turn from your sin and to say yes to him. Let Jesus be Lord of your life. Rely on his death and resurrection as that work that makes you right with God. You'll be forgiven and made new and held forever by your gracious heavenly father. If you want to talk more about this today, then when our service is over, grab me. Grab a friend that you're here with that you know walks with Jesus. Let's begin this conversation and let's get the, your eternity settled today. There's great hope for all of us because of Jesus. There's no one who's beyond God's grace. You may relate to Cain in chapter 4 in ways that no one else knows but you and God perhaps, but you're not beyond the grace of God. You, you aren't so bad, so wrong, so broken that God is done with you. The blood of Jesus covers all of our sins, whatever they might be. So we've learned a great deal about sin from Genesis 4 this morning. Sin destroys our worship. It destroys our relationships. But the grace of God destroys our sin. And the hardest thing about this passage is that when we read it, we have to identify with Cain. This is not a story about other people's sin. This is a story about my sin. This is a story about your sin. And so it forces us to examine our hearts before the Lord. Are you a religious pretender, perhaps? One who plays the Christian, but your heart's far from God. Have you opened the door to sin? Have you tried lying to God and lying to others? Are you tired of that? Are you tired of hiding from God? Are you tired of carrying this burden of guilt and shame? God has grace for you. His grace could come in the form of a warning, as it has in part of the story today, warning you that if you don't turn from your sin and rule over it in the power of Jesus Christ, that it's going to be a destroyer in your life. God's grace is in that warning to you. God's grace could come in the form of his faithful forgiveness. 
So if you're tired of running and lying and hiding or pretending, then it's time to come home. And when you do, you'll find that Jesus has never left you. He's not standing on the front porch of the church waiting to scold you for all you've done. He's ready to clean you, to lift you up, to bring times of refreshing to your heart once again. He'll restore you and he'll lead you on paths of righteousness. A few months ago, we read this really powerful verse in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, and it says this, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Sermons sometimes uh, end with a starting line. We get to the end of the sermon and there's a go out the doors and do this thing type of encouragement. And to be sure, confession and repentance can be long and ongoing and should go beyond the confines of this room. But it's got to start somewhere, so it might as well start here and now. If God has wakened us to sin, if the Holy Spirit has brought conviction on us, then I want us to believe the Word of God and step into a time of confession and repentance through prayer to God. I'm not going to put a mic on the floor and ask you to come up and divulge all your secrets. That would be counterproductive. I'm going to ask you to do something harder. I'm going to ask you to talk to God. We can be fooled, but God knows your heart. We're going to take some time this morning, just in quiet prayer, before we take the Lord's Supper, to confess and begin our repentance from our sin. We're going to let Psalm chapter 51 guide us in this. I'd encourage you to turn your Bible to Psalm 51. If you're using one of those black Bibles, you'll find it on page 499. And if by some chance you happen to get into the sanctuary this morning without grabbing your Lord's Supper elements, now would be a good time to slip out to the lobby and grab those and then come back to your seat. Psalm 51, uh, I was stunned when I read this in preparation for this sermon, stunned at all the parallels between Genesis 4 and Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is David's prayer of restoration, a prayer for forgiveness after he has been deep, deep in sin with Bathsheba, killing her husband, uh, committing adultery, lying to God. And here in Psalm 51 is David's prayer, his confession, and his request for restoration. And as I read this, I want to encourage you to find words for your own confession here. Words for your own prayer here. Listen to what David prays. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I'm conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you're right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. 
Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willful spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God. God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper, build the walls of Jerusalem, that you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. It's time to pray. I want you to take a few moments in quiet prayer, find words for your confession and the start of your repentance here in Psalm 51 perhaps. Ask God to create in you a clean heart. Let your sacrifice to God be a broken spirit and a humble heart. Let's pray together.